Let me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can gather as your people this day and wrap up this series on what it means for us to be salt and light in the world. And we pray, Lord, that this final message would just bring it home for each and every one of us. And Father, that we would truly be a community that is contagious with the good news of Jesus so that people would see Jesus in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. It was a not an uncommon experience in the late 60s when I was a little boy that my dad would come home on a Friday night and he'd say, get your stuff. Me and my brother knew what that meant. We'd grab our skates, our hockey sticks, a couple pucks, and hop in our 1958 Plymouth and drive down Route 50 in Fairfax into downtown Washington where we would skate at night on the reflecting pool. We had the Lincoln Memorial on one side, you had the U.S. Capitol on the other side, and a bunch of people from Minnesota and Wisconsin skating circles around us. I could barely skate, you know, and so I just wanted to play hockey like Bobby Orr, that's all. And so I got my stick, and I'm making my way, and you know what I'm about to say, I had the constant obstacle of my brother, Bo, who, it was a hobby for him to check me at any possible place. I'd be skating along, learning how to skate, he'd plow me over. And so my dad came over, and I just want you to imagine, this is the late 60s, he's got his business hat on, the fedora, he's got a top coat with some hockey skates. And he, and he skates over to me, he goes, all right, son, I'm going to teach you how to skate to avoid your brother, you know. So he'd bend your knees slightly, press out to the side. So I'm pressing out to the side. I go, hey, Daddy, this is working. He goes, just keep going, son. And so I got my skate and I got my, my stick, and I'm skating like Bobby Orr, avoiding Bo as much as I possibly could. But he caught up to me, and he would check me again. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm six years old, you know, and I'm crying. So he crushed me. And uh, my dad came over and said, that's it. You skate with me. And we'll pass the puck to and forth. So I'm, we're passing the puck with my dad. Bo would try to check me, and my dad would just run interference, and Bo would bounce off my father and fall down. What a great memory, huh? As long as I stayed with my father, I was secure, and I had hope that I would make it home. Today we wrap up our series on contagious Christianity, our post-Christian culture. And I hope you've been encouraged by this series and not uh, discouraged. My friends, I want to remind you that when we share our faith, it's all of the Holy Spirit of whether the person responds at all. So you might think you botched it. You know, God can use you, all right? Don't ever think that our effort to, to placard Christ before people are not sowing seeds in a person's life. Secondly, I want to remind us that, you know, we always talk about the things we love, right? It's common for us to say things like, you got to hear this song. You got to see this video. You got to check out this restaurant. 
You got to see this player. You do it all the time. So it is worth some self-examination of our hearts. I mean, if you're one of those who have said, I'm not going to do this, or I can't do this, or I won't do this, I think it's worth self-examining ourselves and asking what evidences are there in my life that I am actually a Christian. After some reflection, I would encourage all of us to just go back to the Lord and develop our love for Jesus Christ. That's where this all flows from. A love for the Lord who first loved us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we show ourselves to be jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. (laughs) And so, just the basic covenant promises that we make as we're members here, taken from Acts 2.42, we're increasingly devoted to spending time in the Word for ourselves, prayer for ourselves, growing in love with one another as we do life together in our little churches here at Christ Church, right? Committing Sunday to be the one day of the week that I never miss unless providentially hindered. And over time, as we build this into our lives, we find ourselves loving the Lord. We find ourselves talking about Him. We find ourselves over coffee with a coworker, And as we find them leaning into the conversation, we ask them, so what do you think about Jesus Christ? And you know what our psychographic studies say about Cleveland and the West Shore 45% of them are Roman Catholic. They define themselves as Roman Catholic. And th- like la- coming off last week's sermon, they have some dots. Kind of, sort of. Right? So before I go any further, I want to make some preparatory marks. This is not going to be a Roman Catholic bashing sermon. All right? There are some Roman Catholics who lay their heads on the pillow each and every week. Every other night, and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sins. All right? So if you're from a Roman Catholic background and you have a Roman Catholic family, you know, just encourage them to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the same breath, I'm going to say the Reformation happened for a reason, and some of those reasons still exist. Therefore, the, the, the people that I have encountered, and many of you from a Roman Catholic uh, background know of what I speak, many of them view it as a heritage, even though that they haven't darkened the doors of a church in 30 years. I'm Roman Catholic, right? But they don't want to upset grandma or mom and be banned from the household because it's part of the family identity. I know what that's like, because in my family, we were Episcopalian, but not one of those Episcopalians. Because Episcopalians are anything but tacky. That's what I was told. And all of a sudden, I became, because the revival that was happening from the Jesus Revolution swept into Truro. And I sat next to one Sunday, I kid you not, a four-star general in his uniform next to a hippie with hair down to his rear end, 
And when we passed the piece, I was waiting to see if the general would shake the hands of the hippies. And he did. And they both raised their hands. They both praised God because God was doing a wonderful work in that church. I'm a product of that 70s Jesus revolution. And so that said, a typical conversation at Jake's on the golf course where I am, someone says, oh, I'm Catholic. Okay, that's great. To you, who's Jesus? Because it varies as I meet folks. What do you think? And they, they say things, and oftentimes a good portion of it is correct. So I encourage us to be positive. You know, you've been catechized. You uphold the doctrine of the virgin birth. You have a, a basic understanding of the Bible. You believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have more in common with one another than most in the culture. That's a good thing. But can I ask you a personal question? Sure. I've never had anybody say no to that. Are you sure you're going to heaven? Because official Catholic doctrine doesn't teach assurance. It doesn't. Secondly, if you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I listen to my heaven, what would you say? Listen to both answers. Because oftentimes the first one is, well, you know, I, I hope so. And the second question, sometimes they answer it right. They just need assurance. But sometimes, like most other people, they don't get it right at all. They say, I hope, I hope I'm going to heaven. But what do you find hope as? Well, you know, I hope I've been good enough. My friend, I got good news for you. Would you mind me sharing you the treasure of God? That's last week's sermon. Those of you who are here, you can go back and listen to it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And so you go through that. But to this morning, we're just going to park on 1 John 5, 13. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that all-important verse. Because what we want people to know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that they can be assured they have eternal life. Meaning, yes, they're going to heaven, but more importantly, not more importantly, but as important that we can live the life we're called to live in the present, in his kingdom. John writes that you may know, that's the Greek word edoida, from the Greek word edo, meaning all-seeing, knowing, perceiving with your eyes and all your senses. That we may know that we have what? Eternal life. Do you know you have eternal life? You can know it when you're saved. You don't have to doubt it, guess about it, wonder about it. I'm ecstatic that I don't have to live under the fog of wondering. It's a strategic verse in 1 John because it tells what the book is all about. When you compare 1 John 513 with John uh, 2031 in the gospel John 2031 he's being evangelistic when John writes these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ in his letter to the ch early church he writes that you might know you have eternal life he wants the church to know they have assurance 
And there are some people who believe today, but you cannot know with certainty that you're saved. And John is dropping a hand grenade in that view. Sure you can. Because God wants his children not to worry or lack assurance of whether they're Christians or not. Now, of course, there's some examinational questions that we have to do of ourselves and of our walk with the Lord. If we truly are Christians or not. First, it's a love for the brethren. Do we really love one another? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Do we love other Christians here and beyond our walls? Two, there's the test of righteousness. Do I desire to grow in the Lord, to serve the Lord, be at war with my own personal sin, and pursue the Lord and his holiness? And there's a right test of right belief. Am I believing in the Jesus of the Bible or some manufactured American Jesus with feathered back hair and lots of, lots of product? He's a very light Jesus who looks a lot like the other individuals. But if you pass all those tests, you can mark it down, you're a Christian. But verse 13 is implying that it's possible to have trust in the grace of God and not have assurance. And I've met many people, certainly in my Roman Catholic friends that I've spoken to. They may even believe like we do, even in salvation by grace and faith in Christ alone, but they lack assurance. There's some Wesleyan traditions that are like this. And so it's important to recognize that people have doubts, and this is a place where it's safe to express that. There are many reasons why Christians have doubts. Sometimes it's because they're not living in a right way with the Lord. Another reason why Christians have doubt is that God may be calling them to greater maturity and they're resisting. Still another reason why Christians doubt is that we have an enemy. The devil. And he knows that he cannot get at some Christians as he gets them in regards to their assurance. And they'll be so introspective, they'll be no good in ministry. Lack of assurance robs you of your joy. It arrests your spiritual growth. It cripples your usefulness in the Lord's ministry. Your assurance of salvation is critical for your maturity in Christ. Spurgeon said that it's our duty to obtain assurance. He said, quote, we should not have been commanded to give diligence to make our calling and election sure if it were not right for us to be sure. I am sure it is right for a child of God to know that God is his father and never to have question in his heart as to his sonship or daughtership. So, dear friends, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. When I have the, the other person read that passage after I've gone through the gospel, you should see their face. Here's what you have. You, it's secured for you. It's not on your performance. It's on Jesus' performance for you. This is how much you are loved. And you have eternal life. Now and forever. What great hope.
So if you place your trust in Jesus Christ and the saving work of God on the cross for you, recognizing that it is by his sheer grace that you have this salvation, and you've trusted by faith in that salvation, his unearned favor upon you, you've hit the jackpot. You're in the kingdom of God. And when you come to him in faith, it's not a blind leap, but a reasoned, rational response to the evidence before you, and you completely have surrendered all of your life, every area of your life to his lordship, you can know you have salvation and live day by day, growing in the grace of God, and you'll find yourself being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Just like Gad was with me skating on the reflecting pool, safe and sound, you can know your Heavenly Father is with you and you are secure because of simply trusting in Christ. So let's wrap up this series, brothers and sisters. What does this all look like? You got your tools and all your tool belt now. We know the importance of it. We're all called to it. What does it look like? Well, borrowing, borrowing some themes from Josh Butler's blog post on the Gospel Coalition this week, this is what I think it looks like in today's church. First, as we continue to go forward, knowing, growing, and serving the Lord, that's our mission statement. They're verbs. We become an increasingly gospel-central church. And out of that flows every part of our lives. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. It's the church is only as strong as the basis on which we stand. And that is the good news of God and Jesus Christ for the world. The centrality of the cross and the centrality of his resurrection as part of God's story. And such a church has priorities. And those priorities are gospel preaching expositionally, administration and receiving the sacraments weekly, Courageous conviction that goes out into the world expressing itself and labors for the truth, the goodness of, and beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. We confront legalism within the church as well as lawlessness. And we cultivate a graceful culture of worship and prayer. Don't assume your neighbors, whether they be seekers or hardened seculars, won't be compelled by your walk in Christ in this way. On the contrary, I expect the churches least ashamed of the gospel's offense to be the ones most effective in reaching unbelievers in our day. Imagine, just imagine that 20-something burned out from the political antagonism of our day. Exhausted from trying to carve out a secure future through his career. Imagine a 40-something, shame-filled, who finds her way to Christchurch because she's weary of the anything-goes excesses of the sexual revolution. They're ready for real talk about sin, repentance, redemption, and hope. They're ready for an identity that's received rather than achieved. A gospel-centered culture church makes them feel welcome, while its seriousness about sin makes them feel safe. And all from that flow two other things. Secondly, when we 
believe that and live that way and take those priorities for ourselves to be the disciples we're called to be, we become, a, secondly, a countercultural community. Not in a negative way, but a positive way. God will draw neighbors through our con- the contrast that we have displayed throughout our, our community when we embody the unity of the spirit amidst a polarized culture. Friendships formed by Jesus' sacrificial love amid a, a culture of loneliness and isolation. The Father's grace in our lives amid a culture of canceling others who disagree with us. We don't cancel them. And a culture of encouraging one another toward holiness and submission to God's holy word. And God's holy reign amidst a society of hallowed authenticity. Leslie Newbick, an Anglican bishop, called that the her- we embody the hermeneutic of the gospel. That when people see us, they see Jesus. So amid disembodied digital life where loneliness is rioting, imagine the hope that a countercultural community like this can offer. Older congregants becoming parents and grandparents to younger congregants. Singles welcome to the table as brothers and sisters with nuclear families. Leaders functioning more as spiritual fathers rather than executives corporately. The church is experienced as the family, our heavenly father, not primarily as an entertainment show, a vendor of religious services. And third, countercultural thing that I think people will see in us is lives of all of life discipleship. God will draw our neighbors as we don't draw false dichotomies. There is no dichotomy between sacred and spiritual. There's no dichotomy between public and private. There's no dichotomy between spiritual and physical. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch in all creation that Christ doesn't claim as Lord. All of life discipleship will include in our lives integration of faith and work that pursues vocation in society as a holy calling. What you do is equal to what I do. My job is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It's not superior, okay? I can't do what you guys do. I'm amazed at how professional and expertise you guys are. I couldn't do it. I'm not called to do it. Thank God. All right? You're not called to this. But we're all together. It expresses a critical appreciation for culture that resists both assimilation into culture and isolation from culture. Okay? It has civic engagement that works our that works with our neighbors to build a flourishing society where common ground can be found among them. And prophetic resistance to the idols of our day, such as totalizing political ideologies or suburban parenting versus biblical parenting. And a refusal to bow to anything that competes with our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. If that second theme of countercultural community is, speaks of the gathered church as an institution, 
all of life discipleship speaks to us as organisms, organisms scattered into the community. We seek to equip every one of you, IT people, business leaders, salesmen, school teachers, janitors, artists, wherever you are, to pursue your vocation as a holy calling to empower the faithfulness to the Lord in a complex culture. And there's three great challenges as we go out into the culture, right? Sex, gender, politics. Well, here's how it's expressed as we've gone through this series. Increasingly, the sexual ethic is treated with hostility, sometimes among self-professing Christians even. We need a beautiful vision that can inspire Christians to obey, not out of legalism, but out of a renewed affection for Jesus Christ. We have a compelling case that God's vision is better than anything the world can offer, especially to our young people. The same is true for gender. We need to equip one another and inspire our neighbors with a vision of God's beauty of design for gender and relation to the body, for the family, and for the church. Three, so many professing Christians also are converting to political religions that compete with their allegiance to Jesus Christ. We need a vision that can explain the idolatrous forces that are at work there. We must show how politics is more religious than, than we might think. And that the Christianity is arguably more political than we think, though in a different way than we may assume. And provide practical guidance for Christians cultivating a public presence that's faithful, wise, graceful, and glorifying to the King of Kings. Isn't that exciting? As we are scattered about embodying gospel-centered lives, all of life discipleship, being a countercultural community, knowing, growing, and serving the Lord. You know, I've been praying, we on the vestry, we've been praying for a, a third great awakening in our culture for 15 years. I think it might be starting. You've heard. Asbury had a chapel service a week and a half ago, and it's still going on, right? Those students walked in and heard, Kim heard the message yesterday. It was just a basic, simple message on Romans 12, and the Holy Spirit took over, and those students are still there, repenting, praising God, and scattering out into the future. And don't ask me for a road trip to Wilmore, Kentucky. Because to experience an awakening like that, a revival like that, that's not how the Holy Spirit in the Bible genuinely works. You don't go chasing the experience. You can't manufacture this. We just pray that it happens in us and through us. So we get to the confession today because... The first thing that happens in any general, genuine revival is it starts with the church in repentance. Asbury College, Asbury University is a Christian college, and they were in chapel. And from that gathering, the first thing they did was confess their sins to one another. That's what the scripture says. 
Now, you can confess your sins out loud if you want to today. I don't discourage that. But you don't have to. But we're going to take one minute, you know, and let the Holy Spirit work on our hearts before we confess our sins today in the place of confession. And let's ask the Lord to do a good work in us as we say. Number one, it always starts in the church. Two, it always begins with repentance. It always results in being passionate followers of Jesus scattered in the community, sharing the gospel. Look what God has done. Come and see. We can do that. And so, my friends, we don't need to go to Wilmore, Kentucky. The Holy Spirit can show up right here among our lives. And as we do so, let's just ask the Lord to do this good work as we are salt and light going through this Lenten season, praying that God will use us in a powerful way. And we'll see it in our neighbors. Just like I sat next to the general and the hippie dude, you know, my hair was kind of in between them at the time. You had short, medium, Looked like Steven Tyler's twin from Aerosmith. Everyone's welcome here. Everyone's welcome here. If you have a hat on, come on. If you don't have a coat and tie, no one has a coat and tie on, right? You know, it's okay. You know, no matter who you are, you are welcome here. But we walk out changed because we're obedient to him, open to him. Who loves us so. We love because he first loved us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that merely because we've trusted in your word, we have eternal life. We pray that you would use all these tools among not only our, our Roman Catholic friends who don't know you, but all our friends, where we live, where we work, where we play, we would take out the tool necessary. You would empower us, embolden us, fill us with such love for you that we talk about Jesus. And it's not weird. We pray that, that would be normal for us. And as we do so, Lord Jesus, that you would just bring an awakening that we've never seen in our generation. That it wouldn't impact just pockets of our culture. It would impact all of our culture. Our legislatures. Our military. Our institutions. Our learning institutions. So that the world would sit up and take notice that you are God, Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest miracle, Lord. And we pray that you would do it in our time like you're doing it at Asbury that it would continue for years and years to come. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.